Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 7 Glory Nights. There was nothing to lose. Thumped 4-0 at the Dell in the first leg of a League Cup tie in August 1980, the return match offered Watford little more than a chance to salvage their pride. To Graham Taylor there was no such thing as a dead rubber, but this came close, and he knew he had to find a way to take something from the experience. Southampton were an accomplished first division side, and there was no shame in being taken apart by them on their own patch. They had just signed Kevin Keegan, the England captain from Hamburg, and had a team full of internationals. Watford had hopes of one day returning to face the likes of Southampton as equals, but those aspirations had been shattered and handed back to them in bits. It wasn't that Watford played particularly poorly, but after getting a taste for causing upsets, it was a salutary lesson that if you missed your marks against the top teams, you could be smashed away for four. Taylor was not tempted to rest any of his players for the second leg. Even if there seemed to be no chance of making it through to the next round, he refused to take it lying down. Tickets had gone on sale before the humbling first match, so there was the prospect of a decent crowd, and Taylor didn't want to take their support for granted. On the morning of the second leg, he gathered the players together after their training session. Right. What we're going to do here is treat this like a league match. They are a first division side, and they have beaten us at their ground and beaten us well. But if this was the league, it would still only be worth three points. If we beat them here, it will be all square. Three points each, and we can be satisfied with that. If we can get to 2-0, they'll be annoyed, but they won't be too worried. But if we get to 3-0, we'll be starting to get to them. I will be happy just to win the game, but let's see if we can come in at half-time 2-0 up, and then see what happens. Southampton turned up thinking the tie was over. The Saints manager, Laurie McMenemy, rested a few, including Keegan, and they thought all they had to do was see out the 90 minutes. Ross Jenkins could sense from the moment he watched them warm up that there was a chance to knock the Saints' halos clean off their heads. They weren't mentally prepared for the game because they had such a lead, he says. That was a dangerous thing because it gave us a chance to get off to a good start, and by the time they realised the danger, it was too late. And Watford did get off to a good start. Malcolm Poskett scored after ten minutes and Watford dominated the rest of the half, playing with a pace that had Southampton wondering what all the hurry was about. Watford was still 4-1 down on aggregate. There was no way back. So what were they wasting all their energy for? Several chances squirmed away and it wasn't until ten minutes before half-time that Ray Train added a second. Taylor had his 2-0 half-time lead. In the dressing room, Taylor told them to forget the first half, wipe the slate clean, and do the same again. It was very clever management by Graham that night, says Kenny Jackett, who was beginning to establish himself in the team's midfield. We didn't have any pressure on us. He just said he wanted a good performance. He broke it down. Take the first half first, then see where we are. We went out there to give it everything we had, to play without fear and try to attack. He said, you never know where it might take you. That took away the fear of failure completely. Graham's big strength was that he put all the emphasis on effort, application and performance, not on the result. If we played positively and did all the right things, 
He would be satisfied with that, but he knew that by getting us to concentrate on doing the simple things well, it gave us a chance. We didn't go into the game thinking that we were 4-0 down and chasing it, we were just trying to create opportunities and score goals. Midway through the second half, Martin Patching scored the third, but a few minutes later, Southampton looked to have saved themselves when the ball hit Steve Sims and bounced into the net. They led 5-3 on aggregate, and there was little over a quarter of an hour left. I remember thinking, I don't believe it, we've still got to score two more, said Wilf Rostron. It didn't cross my mind it was over, and that's quite strange, isn't it? I didn't think, oh well, we've given it a good go. I don't think anyone did. Southampton probably thought we'd blown ourselves out, says Luther Blissett, but we kept going. Within a minute Watford had won a penalty which Ian Bolton scored and suddenly it was back on again. The energy from the crowd was incredible and Watford surfed that wave. Near the end, Jenkins scored the fifth to level the tie and send the game into extra time. The news spread that something remarkable was happening down at Vicarage Road. People who lived nearby had heard the crowd roar again and again and ventured out to see what was going on. Some wandered up to the ground and towards the end of the game the gates were opened, as they always were, to let the fans that wanted to beat the rush get away, but no one was leaving. Instead, people were coming in. In extra time, Southampton were dead men walking. At first their complacency was their undoing. Now they had nothing left to fight with. Run ragged for ninety minutes, they realised they were up against an unstoppable force. The crowd believed, and so did the Watford team. There was only one substitute in those days, but Southampton players were queuing up to come off, says Eric Steele, Watford's goalkeeper. They didn't want to have to win the tie again. The atmosphere was incredible in extra time. The whole thing had snowballed, and suddenly the belief that we could actually do it kicked in. You could see the Southampton players had gone. They were not enjoying the game one bit and they just wanted to get out of there. Train clashed heads with a Southampton player and had to come off. Nigel Callaghan went on. It was just his third first-team appearance. As soon as Callaghan got on the pitch, Watford won a corner. Callaghan took up a position on the edge of the Southampton penalty area. The ball was cleared and it fell to him. I hit it first time instinctively and it flew into the net, he says. That was basically the winner. And for me, as a young lad, it's what I've been dreaming about. That was a really special moment for me. When it happens to you for the first time and you see your name in all the papers, you really can't take it all in. One thing sticks in my mind. I remember lining up to kick off again and turning to look up at the Vicarage Road end. There was this double-decker bus parked in the road and the people on the top deck could see over the wall onto the pitch. They must have seen the goal because the passengers on the bus were celebrating too. Watford kept going. In boxing, if you knock someone down and they get up, you try to knock them down again, says Blissett. Well, sometimes we were unstoppable. If we knock someone down, we'd start kicking them too, metaphorically speaking. We never let up. Poskett scored again towards the end of extra time and the game ended 7-1. Sir Stanley Rouse, the former president of FIFA, said, I cannot remember seeing anything in my lifetime to compare with it. Taylor told the Watford Observer that on the morning of the match he was stopped by a young supporter who asked him what the score would be. 7-1, he joked. A day later the club placed an order for a range of commemorative merchandise, including biros, bearing that result. After beating Sheffield Wednesday at Hillsborough, 
the League Cup fourth-round draw pitted Watford against Nottingham Forest, the reigning European champions. A lot of people grew up that night, says Steele. Beating Southampton had given us the confidence to think we could beat Forest. Maybe we didn't match the man for man, but as a team, if we did everything right, we had a chance, especially on our home ground. The atmosphere in the evenings could be terrific, and no one liked having to play on that slope. It used to slope from the Vicarage Road end down to the rookery. People say there's no slope, but crikey me, try kicking up it. Try finding Luther or Ross with a goal kick up that bloody hill with the wind blowing. Away teams didn't like it, that's for sure. Nottingham Forest's maverick manager, Brian Clough, was not on the team coach as it reversed its way down Occupation Road to drop the team off. Clough was on holiday in Mallorca and had left his coaching staff to get on with it. Apparently he was so confident his team would win in his absence, he didn't get round to making a phone call from Calamior to check the result until late morning the following day. He was in for a shock. The atmosphere before the game was fizzing. Watford supporters were becoming quite good at generating a crackle of electricity for these big cup games. They played You'll Never Walk Alone before the kick-off, which only heightened the emotions. Watford had a plan. The driving force in the Forest team was a left-winger from Scotland called John Robertson. A few pounds above his fighting weight, he didn't look like he posed much danger, particularly in a position that requires speed and deftness. He had a lumbering gait that made him look almost disconnected from the play around him. But given the ball, and he could dissect a defence. Stop Robertson and you could stop Forrest, Taylor thought. He shuffled his team and picked John Ward, a centre-forward, to play on the right wing up against Robertson. Tactically, that was such a clever move, says Jacket. John was a centre-forward, but he was experienced and very disciplined. If he was asked to do a particular job, he would do it with complete focus, and that is exactly what you had to do against Robertson. You couldn't leave him to wander about. You had to shut him out of the game and stop him getting the ball. That was the key to the whole night. It was astute of Graham to spot that, but what was crucial was picking the right player to do the job, and he got that absolutely spot on. For such an attacking manager, that was a very defensive move, but it was the perfect move. In a way, we were then playing 10 against 10, and it gave us more chance of doing the things in attack that we wanted to do. Taylor had described the 7-1 win against Southampton as the best result of his managerial career, but this was even better. Watford scored twice as half-time approached. The first was a penalty by Luther Blissett after Kenny Burns fouled Poskett. Jenkins added the second and scored two more in the second half to complete a hat-trick. His father used to say that on his day Jenkins was the finest centre-forward in England. That night he was. Watford had reduced the European champions to rubble. The final score was 4-1. As Larry Lloyd, Forrest's England international defender, trudged off the pitch, he remarked to Poskett that he had never done so much running in his life. Suddenly the thought of Watford reaching the first division didn't seem such an outlandish idea. End of chapter 7. Next time, Graham Taylor goes shopping again, signing a player from each of the North London Giants as he sets his sights on Division 1. <laughs>